Welcome to Best Served, a podcast recognizing unsung hospitality heroes. Join Chef Jensen Cummings as he chops it up with industry leaders about the humans who've impacted their lives and careers. From childhood guides, to ass-kicking mentors, to the team members in the trenches that make it all happen. Help us celebrate these rock stars by sharing our show and nominating your own unsung hospitality heroes. Connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Now here is your host. What's up, everybody? Jensen Cummings here. Thank you for tuning in. Today I'm talking with Elon Wenzel, sushi chef and owner of Element Knife Company in Denver, Colorado. Elon, thanks for chatting with us, man. Thank you. Great to be here. Excited to talk. We're going to talk sushi, yeah. I know. We're going to talk knives, I know. Uh, but let's yeah. start, like we always like to, with some origin story. You are born in Boulder, raised in Louisville, Colorado, so you are a native, which basically means you're a unicorn in we Colorado. We are far between these days. <laughs> you guys have, like, T-shirts and the whole nine, and, and us hordes from places like me, like California, are coming to beautiful Colorado. You guys are gracious to, uh, to host us, but I think it's always funny and I'm like, oh, you're actually from Colorado. So I love that. So I want to talk about Colorado a little bit. I want to talk about the childhood, the kind of kid you are. Those things are always super interesting to me. And kind of reading some of your background, you played flutes all the way through into high school. And I'm really fascinated with that because I think it's interesting when we have creative outlets outside of food that maybe keep us grounded or, or keep us inspired throughout our career or on the flip. Mm -hmm that kind of had us being creative or thinking creatively that sometimes we see connections. So maybe talk about your childhood a little bit and then how, why the flute? The recorder, wasn't it the recorder that we all had to do when we were kids and you went with the flute? Yeah, so, um, you know, music class in elementary school was those types of things, recorder and tambourine or whatever. Um, but then come fifth grade, they wanted us to get into band with instruments and, I got the flute because it was a hand-me-down thing. <laughs> um, and I'm not sure I was in love with it at first, but I was good at it. Uh, and I was first chair all the way through uh, middle school. And then high school um, started to realize I wasn't totally in love with it, although I did like it. Um, and reading music, I think, played an a important part um, in growing up. It just uh, opens your mind to... Um, other viewpoints and understandings of things. Yeah, it was, it was a good good experience for sure. Yeah, I could barely play row row or your boat or Mary had a little lamb. <laughs> and, and then in high school, I pretended like I could play the bass so I could be like a cool kid in a ska punk band, but had no musical <laughs> talent whatsoever. So very interesting. And you said reading music. I think that's I think that's fascinating. I find a lot of opportunities for us to be creative and also to learn skill sets or techniques from, from other disciplines. So I'm fascinated yeah. by that. So, and, and the hand me down yeah, is great. And he said, Hey, I'm, I'm good enough at it to <laughs> yeah. like go through, you know, into high school. And so talk about some of those early years before we get into kind of some of the, the restaurant work in those early days for you, uh, thinking about that creativity. And you got a, a story about a sandwich. Talk to me about sandwiches. Cause I am a fan. Yeah. So, um, I used to go out to California and visit my grandparents in the summers and um, I had a little more free reign in, in their kitchen than I think my kitchen at home. Um, and they had uh, 
a broader selection of food, I think, than we did. You know, my, I grew up eating pretty healthy, so a lot of yogurt and whole wheat breads and these types of things. Um, so <clears throat> there was one summer where I was making myself some toast, and uh, it seemed in the moment, for whatever reason, it seemed boring to just put butter on it. So I put uh, cream cheese and I was like, well, wait, why do we have to stop here? Like, I like these things together. And I wasn't coming at it from the viewpoint of a chef, but reflecting on it, I think it it kind of speaks to that a little bit where I was playing with um, different flavors and seeing how it worked. And it was actually kind of delicious. It had like butter and cream cheese and peanut butter and jelly all together on, uh, on toasted bread. Um, and I read something a few years ago. I don't remember something came through on social media and it really spoke to me, um, about flavors. And as a chef, uh, whoever was posting this believed that any two flavors can work together in the right, uh, proportion. And if they can't, there should be a third thing that bridges them together. Um, and that stuck with me and I've applied that to, um, recipe development or just messing around at home. Yeah, hundred percent. And your grandparents going out to California, where in California were they? Um, close to, um, can't even think of the name of the larger city, but it's called Laguna Hills, Laguna Woods. Um, I'm sure people are familiar. Orange County. Yeah. Uh, with that. Yeah. It's in Orange County. Yeah. Um, sure. and that was fun. Yeah. My grandparents were, um, pretty amazing people and, um, Grandma Rose had several quotes, but one of hers was, uh, if there's something worth doing, it's worth doing right. And um, that stuck with me over the years. And I found I can apply that to not just basically everything in life, but professionally in a kitchen, right? Like if I'm going to do my, if I'm going to choose cooking as a career, let's do it the right way. Right. And if I'm going to, choose to do sushi let's do it the right way and for me that meant going to japan so i finally found my way uh in japan and trained sushi in 2004 um and then you can take that philosophy of if it's worth doing it's worth doing right to the nth degree um from the macro like right like do it as a career as a, uh, as a choice all the way to the micro um systems fundam uh practicing fundamental or excuse me, applying the fundamentals, right, to your uh, everyday prep, um, to your workstation. And that's like your mise en place, right? We all learned that as chefs growing up. is like how important your mise en place is. So um, that has served me well over the years and has spoke to me as well. Grandma Rose is, is wise. I like, yeah. I like that again, when we can take things – you know, into our own context, I think is important. So Grandma Rose laid some foundation. She wasn't talking about cooking. She wasn't talking about being a chef or sushi chef or knives, yet you were able to apply it broadly. And, oh, man, you're speaking my language. You know I love thinking macro and micro. Super into (laughs) that. So so speaking of those early years, right, I always like that. That first job, the, the entree into the industry is always fascinating to me. It's I knew I wanted it from the get. I had a summer job I needed, needed, and so I just started dishwashing, busting, whatever it might be, where you just happen into it. So your origin in the industry specifically, about 15 till 17 years old, dishwasher, busser, 
classic for a lot of us at Bart's Restaurant in Louisville, Colorado. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about that experience. And was it Uh, immediate? You're in for life? Or what was that like for you in those early days in the restaurants? No, for me, early on, it was just, like you said, I needed a job. I needed some cash, right? um, Things to spend your money on when you're 15. And um, reflecting on it now, I realized that I did have an affinity almost um, for those kitchen dynamics. I'm not sure I understood it at the time. Um, And this restaurant was pretty cool to work at. You know, um, the waitresses let us get away with just about anything we wanted. And the cooks in the kitchen were revered, right. And kind of untouchable and um, the authority on all things. Um, And my senior year, actually junior year in college, uh, excuse me, in high school, um, our career counselors wanted to meet with us and set us on a path. And I was thinking I was going to be an artist, right? My parents were artists. I kind of considered myself an artist, although looking back, I was not so good at it, um, painting and drawing. Um, but I really wanted to be a photographer. I took four years of uh, black and white photography in high school and the counselor said, well, that can be competitive. If you like things that are artistic, you should be a chef. Chefs can be really creative and make a hundred thousand dollars a year. And I was like, sign me up. Um, so she got me involved and that's not the case at all, as we all know. Yeah, let's pause on those. that for a second. First of all, she got those figures from. But first of all, so interesting how she could be so wrong and so <laughs> yeah. right at the same time. It's crazy that a guidance counselor got it right in in our day, you know, because they didn't very often. Uh, and uh, I think that's super interesting. So, hundred thousand dollars a year—that's laughable. <laughs> yeah. Even yeah, even, yeah. To, even today, right? <laughs> but they, they put you on this path. And so apparently you, you listened long enough to, to consider it, yeah? Yeah, so um, she got me involved in a vocational high school um, the following year uh, as a senior where I would drive up to Longmont, the CDC Career Development Center. And we ran the cafeteria. Um, so I'd go up there an hour a day for five days um, and work in the kitchen. Um, and I, I don't know, I'm guessing maybe because of my experience as a busser, I knew some of the kitchen dynamics. I knew, I, I recognized some of the basic equipment, um, some of the lingo, whatever. And <clears throat> at the end of the year, the instructor of that program, Bar- Barbara Lindsay, um, got us involved in a competition through something called hero home economics related occupations. And she put me in a front of the house competition and a back of the house competition. So I meddled gold in the front and silver in the back. Uh, and I made eggplant ravioli with a lemon butter sage sauce, (laughs) which I found in a magazine, I believe. Um, like some old school art culinaire magazine? Something like that, yeah. Um, and she knew the director of Colorado Mountain College at the time, Doug Schwartz, and uh, got me an interview um, at the end of my senior year. So uh, I got in, and it was a new program at the time. Um, so it was neat to watch the program change and evolve while I was there. But 
even subsequently years after. Uh, and some of the successful students that came out of that that are in Denver now, right? Sharif, um, Matt Fodder, uh, there's somebody else I can't think of off the top of my head. Um, yeah, it was just a great experience, and uh, I'm thankful for those uh, situations that I got placed in. Um, funny enough, in culinary school in the beginning, I didn't love it. Um, part of it for me was being away from my girlfriend and friends and family, um, but then really having to work. Right? <laughs> like I didn't know what a double shift was. Um, I didn't know what applying myself meant. I didn't understand really about studying. I kind of wanted to leave work early every chance I had. Um, and I kind of had this incorrect mentality of like, well, I'm paying for this so I can fuck off if I want to with it. Um, and that didn't last very long. Uh, well, longer than it should have possibly a three year program. The first two years I struggled, uh, and almost quit, <clears throat> but worked with some great chefs that took me under their wing. Um, Toby Helmuth, Neil Trimper, um, and then some of the instructors and head chefs at the resort uh, didn't give up on me, which is good stuff. Um, so you're saying a couple things that I think <laughs> are, are important here, Elon. I just want to like hover over this for a moment. First, that you yeah. had an interview because culinary schools, you used to have to get in, right? Versus yeah. Yeah. anybody got in and and it, and it changed the dynamic a little bit. I think more opportunity for more people to get in is good. Then I also think teaching to the bottom is a challenge that a lot of culinary schools face. So there's, there's some of that dynamic at play that I think is a whole nother conversation and podcast, but I just wanted to touch on that. What I think is really important that you said is a lot of us have that experience where we get in it and we're partying, we're in the restaurant, the vibe is cool. There's, you know, a, cast of characters like you cannot believe in restaurants and when you're 16 17 18 19 years old that shit is bonkers right and oh yeah all those and I new experiences two weeks after i started two weeks after high school so i was just barely 18 started this program and get introduced into the kitchen life like the hardcore kitchen life it was quite an experience now i loved reading this because we're <laughs> touching on kind of your journey in those in those formative years I always like asking people about their proudest moments and you said, and I'll, I'll break this apart, but in two parts of a statement, you said proudest moment, apprentice of the year from the Colorado Mountain Culinary Institute. However, you preface that with basically saying you need to get your shit together, your grades and your attitude. And you alluded to that a little bit. I want to go into that a little bit more. What was it that really crystallized it for you? Was there an aha moment was it just cumulative? You said, I got to get it together. How did that go about? Because that spark is something that a lot of us find or never find. And I think it's really important. Yeah, I feel very fortunate um, to have had those people influence me, right? Like Toby and Neil um, and some of my fellow students, right? Like I couldn't, at the time, I didn't have the perspective of why I was failing, right? I didn't know how to own it. Um, and it bothered me. So I was constantly asking coworkers, uh, fellow students, like, you know, what they're, why they're experiencing, their experience was better, I guess, ultimately. And so with a lot of conversations and a lot of like getting pulled into walk-ins and getting screamed at about why people don't like working with me, 
or what I'm doing wrong or how I fucked something up that day. Um, uh, and a lot of reflection on that, it, it hit me one morning. And I remember waking up kind of that hazy, like dream state where it was like, Oh, I get it. I get it. And, and I can't explain exactly why it clicked, but it did. And I was like, okay, that's, I see. Right. Like don't ask to go home early. That's not doing your best. Ask for more work. If you have to go to the bathroom during dinner service, hold it. That's doing your best. Get involved, right? Get, get more man hours. Um, so I joined the um, steering committee, um, asked for more work. Uh, we formed an ice carving club. I got involved. Uh, this is all senior year. I got involved um, with our competition team. Um, and so I had really turned it around. And I guess the instructors and chefs and fellow students recognized that. And I, I'm guessing that's why I was awarded Apprentice of the Year and, you know, got straight A's. And um, we scored well uh, in the competition team and just all those positive experiences after coming to that understanding of, of how I was really kind of going down the wrong path and what I needed to do. So I'm very thankful for those people. Yeah, so moral of the story, you, you get out of it what you put into it was really what cemented that for you in that moment. Yeah, in that 100%. dream state, you found that center. And it sounds like you still use that today, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. And um, one thing I'd like to add, too, is at, once I started to get more involved with uh, uh, this as a career, I, I fell in love with cooking. Um, where I'm not sure I was really ever in love with it in those beginning stages. Um, but I, I did come to really love and enjoy it um, and couldn't get enough of it um, and really took that like gung-ho approach as I moved forward. Um, so, yeah. All right. Perfect segue. Love of food. Let's get playful for a little while. I want to touch on always your pantry. I learned so much about people if I know what you eat at home. <laughs> you know, tell me what you eat and I'll tell you who you are type stuff. And then we'll get into one of our best served on icebreaker games. But first, your deserted island food, as you put it, which I like that you actually said deserted island versus people say desert island. I was like, I don't know what a desert island is. They both have, have, <laughs> I don't know have what sand, but whatever. <laughs> you know, you do you. PB&J is your deserted island food. This is really yep. great. It's coming up multiple times. Actually, it always makes me think of Christmas Vacation and the Jelly of the Month Club. Clark, that's the gift <laughs> yeah. that gives all year long, right? And Matthew Rayford, chef, farmer from uh, Georgia, told me he was in the peanut butter jelly club, which was basically a subscription that you'd get peanut butters and jellies like boutique ones from all over the country. <laughs> so I wanted to throw that out for you in case you were interested in a peanut butter club. Apparently they're out there. But so tell yeah, us. Yeah, maybe I'll have to look into that. <laughs> PB&J, I mean, your sandwich game clearly is strong from a young age. What type of peanut butter, what type of jelly, give it to us. What it, what's in Elon Wenzel's PB&J <laughs> deserted island food pantry? Well, my, my, my love of crunchy versus creamy ebbs and flows. So currently and lately for the, actually the last several years, I've been on crunchy um, and strawberry jam specifically. 
I'm with you. I'm smooth and strawberry, but I, I feel you. And there's one's not better than the other. It's very uh, situational potentially, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I tend to go on happies, so to speak. Like really, I'll really get into something, uh, burn it out, and then move on to something else. So. <laughs> I dig it. All right. And there's one more thing that was in your pantry that I really want to make sure and just give a shout out to you. You have a Shio Koji on hand at all times. Now, very, very quickly, tell us what that is, because a lot of people listening aren't going to know. And then what kind of gangster do you have to be to have Shio Koji just <laughs> laying around all the time? Talk to us about that. Well, Shio Koji is um, essentially fermented uh, I if I understand it correctly, lactobacillus, um, which is the sake lease. So um, it's a byproduct of sake and then fermented uh, with salt added um, to make this kind of pasty, porridgey looking, uh, very salty, um, nice fermented quality product. And it's so great for steaks and meat products. So if I'm going to throw something on the grill, I might want to rub a little shio koji on it or use it in, uh, if I want to sous vide some meat, um, or you can even stir a little into, um, uh, like a cooked rice, uh, for a little added depth of flavor and umami or, uh, works really good with, um, risotto too, just a little at the end, finish it, let it, and let it cook in just a titch. Um, it's pretty easy to use. Uh, not, not a lot of people know about it, but I guess because of my experience in Japanese cuisine, um, I've come to love it and use it. We, we are kindred there. You know me, fermentation <laughs> is, is like a way of life. So you got to have that aspergillus orizea, right? That's the mold that uh, uh -huh. okay. spores, well, pre-sporing. I won't get into the details, but it literally, I start to like twitch and geek out when I hear somebody mention Koji. And the fact that you're just dropping umami bombs on any meal at any time, I think is amazing. People listening, Shio Koji, look it up, get with yeah. the program. Elon Wenzel <laughs> just throws it into risotto on a random Tuesday at home. Really good for, for gravy as well. Just throwing that out there. All right. Oh, Yes. Yeah, okay. Next time you're you're in the mood for some gravy, shio koji in the gravy is immense amounts of sodium and umami. Knives. Knives have become a way of life for you. I think clearly going to Japan, being inspired by Japanese culture, by sushi, and oh, by yeah. the craftsmanship around knives is unbelievable oh, yeah. there. Right. So there's so much we could never we could never if we had twenty podcasts get all the way into it but that's why people need to to connect with you on that level because i know education is really important to you so for our best serve yeah. on ice game i just want to i just want to do a little know your knife because usually we play a little game i ask some trivia things like that however i just wanted you to like drop some knowledge on us so i had three different kind of categories that i was interested in if you could kind of just give us some insights the first thing i was interested in is just the makeup of the knife itself when it comes to the metal. You know, I think the metallurgy is a very yeah. interesting, fascinating thing. So Hagane steel is a, is a way of preparing metal on top of the type of metal, if I understand it, versus stainless steel. Uh, the, the German knives and American knives are made up of stainless steel. 
give us a little bit of, of understanding of what's going on there for yeah. folks and okay, chefs so thinking about class, their knives. Right, okay, so Japanese knife smiths, the origins come out of Japan from swordsmithing from the 14th century. Moving forward, Japanese knives classically use carbon steels, although today um, they can certainly use stainless steels, and they do. Um, so Hagane is a hard steel, uh, typically or originally carbon steel, and there are technically three grades, uh, blue, white, and yellow, although yellow really is more for tools and like super low quality knives, so you won't see yellow steel around much. Um, and then each of the blue steel and white steel have classifications. So blue, there's um, grades one, two, and super, and then white, there's one, two, and three. Um, and those reference the impurities or the amount of impurities um, or more refined might be a better way to put that. And then it gets the name blue or blue paper steel because of the color of the paper that the ingots are wrapped in at the, where they're produced in the Hitachi factory in Japan. So, uh, Hagane is used, that hard steel is used on the back side of a knife. Well, there's, so sorry, there's, there's Honyaki, which is a mono steel or one type of steel, but there's something called Kasumi too. And, and we're referencing single bevel knives right now, uh, which are the classic Japanese style. Um, and <clears throat> Hagane is used on the back side for the cutting edge. And then there's something called Jigane, which is a soft steel that is applied to the spine and face of the knife that gives the knife structural integrity. Um, and shock absorption uh, uh, because carbon steel is great or high carbon steel is great at edge retention, but it's very brittle. So it needs that, uh, that Gigane or that softer steel to add flexibility as it were. <laughs> Does that answer your question? <laughs> the, so many rabbit holes to go down. Yeah, I think that's good. Just understanding just how the, the thing that at the top level that seems interesting to me is the fact of what you talked about, like the, the mono metal where it's a single metal versus the way that they're folding the metal, the way that they're thinking about the softness and hardness of the metal, potentially different parts That's of right. the knife. It's just unbelievable the level of thought that goes into creating a piece of metal with an edge to cut shit. Like, so Japanese. Yeah. So I think it's just interesting. And people are going to have to now hear this and Google the shit out of it and get into it. And again, connect with you on that education tip. Yeah. Cause I know that's important, yeah, absolutely. but and I think it's to, just, go, sorry, I totally cut you off. I was just going to use a shameless plug of go to my website. There's a, all this information is laid out. Um, and I'm actually uh, incorporating some diagrams to go along with all this information uh, that will make it very understandable. Yeah. And with that, you mentioned single bevel being the classic Japanese style, single bevel, double bevel, Quickly tell us what it's about, but more importantly, potentially, in what situations you'd be using one over the other to give chefs out there, cooks out there, a little bit of a roadmap on kind of having the right tool for the right job. Well, bevels, another word, is an angle or an edge, and um, it's pretty straightforward to understand. So a, 
a double bevel knife means that, uh, and, and most commonly that there's a V shape of two bevels coming together at equal angles. Uh, and that's kind of your classic chef's knife and Western style knife. And then a single bevel knife where that edge is actually a bit more broad uh, because it's only coming from one side. Um, and that's used for chefs that uh, uh, are of Japanese origin or work in Japanese restaurants, um, sushi specifically, uh, a lot of the time. And <clears throat> that single bevel will actually be uh, quite thinner. Uh, and so it, they're typically used for chefs that are working with softer foods, a lot of meat slicing. Um, double bevel knives, most commonly in Western restaurants, I think most chefs uh, use those. Um, and the edge is coming in at a typically 15 to 20 degrees. And that thinner edge gives really great precision um, for slicing kind of everyday things, cutting, chopping things. Um, wider edge angles, <clears throat> like 30 degrees would be for heavy chopping and meat cleaving. So like we all know that a thicker chopper for like a, a meat cleaver has that wider angle. Um, so I think most people are common with what, or excuse me, uh, most people know what that those common uses are for and have seen them before. Understood. All right. Well, on that, we're talking about the hardness, the softness, the angles of the bevels or the edge, a little bit about maintaining that edge, maintaining the steel sharpening. Give us a couple of those high level that we need to be really aware of when taking care of our, our knives. Sure. So um, sharpness, I think the idea of sharpness is a little misunderstood. I always like to say that um, a 30 degree angle versus a 15 degree angle, really it's, it's equally as sharp. Uh, it's just that a wider blade and a more narrow edge angle or a, a wider blade and a wider edge angle will have more friction. And conversely, thinner and thinner uh, will have less friction. And so it passes through that food product really well. And so kind of going back into thinner, uh, when we talk about Japanese single bevel knives, they're even subsequently even more thin. And so they just perform at uh, such precision and they feel extra sharp. Um, but maintaining your sharpness, like don't mistreat your knife, right? Um, don't hack it buckets and cans and coconuts. Um, what are you cutting on, right? So like we talk about edge retention and probably the question I get asked the most is how often do you sharpen a knife? And it's really relative. Like what is the blade material? What is the HRC? So for people that don't know, HRC is the Rockwell scale. It's a scale of hardness. Um, so the higher the number, the greater the edge retention. Um, and so typically the, that will last longer on a higher HRC. Um, uh, what are you using the knife on, right? Like is your cutting board really hard? Is it Corian or bamboo or is it a little softer as it would? Um, are you scraping the blade when you're moving food product to the side or into a pot or are you turning it over and using the spine? Um, what is the quality of your sharpening tool and, sharp, and or sharpening stone? And is that being maintained um, and flattened consistently? So these things really play into edge retention uh, and sharpness, but Following some basic fundamentals, you can really um, have a knife that will treat you well because you're treating it well. So like we said, you know, properly establish your edge, um, 
use, I like ceramic water stones, best bang for your buck, easy cleanup, um, maintain your stones, uh, things that we talked about. Don't press too hard. Don't mistreat your knife, et cetera, et cetera. So um, it's all pretty simple. And I love teaching people, especially chefs, uh, even home chefs, um, some of these fundamentals or, you know, there might be one thing that somebody is not aware of that can really up their game, so to speak. Um, so it's all about that support and education, like you mentioned earlier. Every time I talk to you, I feel more educated and realize that I don't know anything about <laughs> it. I think it's great. And, and you, you really hit on one of my fundamental thesis as I always talk about, like, I don't have all the answers. I'm just good at asking the question and being comfortable yeah. being the dumbest person in the room. Like this is something in my core. And so right there, you just asked 10 questions about, the dynamic, the context in which you are using your knife and that will inform the way that you maintain your knife. And I think that's an important thing. It's the questions, ask the questions. Thank yeah, you. that's right. And, and amazing and amount of, under- of education. Thank you. <laughs> pleasure. Serious. One last thought to wrap that up and then let's get into some of your people. All righty. Uh, well, yeah. So, um, I was just going to say like, uh, these understandings and, and the knowledge, um, it, it could be that you're doing uh, 90% of the things right, but there might be one thing that, that you're not understanding or not knowing uh, that can really alleviate that frustration. So like I said, that's, that's why I love to, to do that, uh, offer that education and offer that support. Yeah, and getting people into the right, into the right car, right? Like you're getting them into the right vehicle for them i think is is super important so well that's absolutely right we're chefs we do we choose to do this as a profession so uh we should have the right tools uh and we should love all aspects of what we do so cutlery is a huge part of of of, of a chef's life preaching i hear you there all right let's talk about some more of your people uh, you've already gotten to to shout out a few people that have had a little impact let's go deep on a few people Let's, let's kind of start. You start with the grandparents very, very early on. Who was somebody early on, maybe potentially on the professional side, that really got you on the path? David Welsh. Chef David, David Welsh. Welsh. So before you get into it, I want to no. touch on this because I read this and I was like, this is great. I'm excited because our, our friend Sharif Arhenis Cruz was on the show and had a lot of great things to say about David Welch, whose name I had never heard. And this, I mean, Elon, this is why I do this. I love that now I know who David Welch is times two. Because now two people that I respect <laughs> yeah. and know have said David Welch was an influence on him, that now he's like my spirit animal. And I, I'm going to go find this man and talk yeah. to him because he's clearly it wasn't – an accident that Sharif or you had an experience like you did with him. So big shout out to David Welch. Tell us about why David Welch was so influential and impactful for you. Uh, well, partly because of those formative years of my life and career, um, you know, 19 years old, uh, working with this chef that uh, was so old school. I mean, I'm not sure if young chefs today, uh, no too many old school chefs, but uh, always had the tall toque, um, uh, classic whites, um, 
this guy was tall and kind of intimidating, six foot plus uh, uh, mountain climber, right? Like he climbed K2, I believe, and other mountains of the sort. And so super motivated, super professional um, and scary as heck, right? Like an inch from your face screaming at you, uh, throwing things at your face during service uh, if things weren't going appropriately. But uh, on the flip side, very fair, very caring. Um, and that type of environment worked for me. Um, I responded well. Uh, it was never personal with him. It was just that you realized that you let yourself down more than him or the team. Um, and there were times where like, if you did something wrong or he needed to set you in the right path, he would pull you into the walk-in crack open a beer for you and give you a pretty good heart to heart. Um, and would never give up on you, uh, and would empower you. Um, if he saw that you could handle, uh, whatever station he threw you on that station and make sure you got it down pat. Um, and would never let you sink. He'd let you tread water, right? Like he'd keep a, an eye on you from across the kitchen and if you did start to sink, you'd run over and, and jump in and help you out, get you out of the weeds. Um, and <clears throat> all self-taught. He never went to culinary school, but he did work with some old school French guys. Um, and his technique was always great. Perfect execution, understanding of food, uh, and always prompting us to educate ourselves, right? Like he would say something like, uh, you need to go check out uh, the Rue's gastronomique, um, or get, um, <laughs> some of the titles now I'm losing off the top of my head, but, uh, these classic books that had all the classic recipes and foundation of French cooking. Um, so it was really great. And he would also allow us to <clears throat> come in on our off days or early. Uh, and he would, be a hunt behind us a hundred percent. If we wanted to practice our classical vegetable cuts, yeah, we could come in a couple hours early and cut all the carrots and onions in those cuts for the stock. Right. So the stocks always had like beautiful, uh, vegetable cuts in them. <laughs> uh, or he would, uh, order us specialty items that we could play around with so that we could understand how to cleave meat. Right. One time we got a whole deer back, um, just cause, so that was pretty awesome. Amazing. Yeah. So, you're at the ranch, Keystone Resort, with David mm -hmm. Welch. Uh, you remember any of the other crew that was a part of that that time with you? Yeah. Um, oh, I'm gonna forget some of their last names now. Uh, some of the service staff up there was really great. Um, let's see. Uh, names are eluding me now, but um, Jeff. Uh, whatever his last name was, he actually created a hot sauce that was pretty successful for a little while, but it never really caught on called um, Hot Lips 10 Pepper Nectar. And it was delicious. Uh, I don't know how he achieved it, but he really had a depth of umami in that hot sauce. Um, Rusty Madison, actually, we were uh, classmates. I think he was a year below me. And it turns out we kind of became fast friends up there. And then we realized we knew each other from high school. Uh, so then we became roommates up there and we still keep in touch today. Um, great chef. He worked for Acorn um, 
and oak. Uh, and I worked with him at the ranch as well. Um, yeah, a handful of names. Uh, a girl named Robin, she was a, our sous chef at one point. Um, like I said earlier on, Neil Trimper, he was uh, a later sous chef for David, uh, and he moved back out east, but really great guy too. Um, he would always race us, right? Like if we wanted to, if we were dumping wine into a sauce or something, it would be like, who can do it the fastest? So I actually learned some techniques like on how to swirl or twirl the bottle so that uh, it comes out in almost like a tornado and you can empty a bottle in just a matter of seconds. Um, so yeah, these motivational people, it's just really great to be involved with them and have them push you and you admire that um, and you try to achieve it yourself. So that's great. Yeah, those type of those type of formative years where you're just like everything is a new technique, everything is a new educational opportunity. You you kind oh, of yeah. sometimes envy those later on. You're like, God, I remember the first time I learned something so simple that just changed the game for you. So I think it's really great those those early years and uh Yeah, absolutely. Full of wonderment. The word I like to use. <laughs> Childlike enthusiasm. <laughs> while getting stuff thrown at you is such a <laughs> yeah. balancing act and and again this is a, a reoccurring theme that i think we're trying to grapple with a little bit in the industry is how do we have that level of intensity or is it commitment or is it work ethic uh, all these catch-all terms <clears throat> versus the balance of you know toxicity and, and abuse sure. and these and, different things and it's such a yeah interesting absolutely balancing act and I, I really think yeah. the consistency that what you're saying what Sharif's saying was clear there's consistency it wasn't personal also that they you know take you in the walk-in and personalize the upside of it and so i think there's just like little nuggets to take away that sure. it also 100%. i hear this talked about in tech a little bit where like the creating steve jobs into this icon made everybody in Silicon Valley want to just be an asshole and, and treat their people like crap because that's what it would take to be successful. I think there was also a lot of that in the restaurant side where it's like, well, to be at that level, you have to be intense and just be an asshole. But I think people like David Welts were coming from a really good place. They just had these unbelievable expectations and scruples, but were clear and consistent about them. And so I think trying to unpack where there is the challenges and the opportunities within that dynamic is just fascinating to me. And I know it's something you and I have talked about, and I know it's something at length that the industry is grappling with right now. So just opening up that conversation, I think is important. So thanks for bringing some yeah. of your experience to light. Yeah, hundred percent. All right, let's move forward a little bit in time. You got through culinary school. You're at kind of your first high end. You're throwing beautiful tornado potatoes and carrots or excuse me carrots and stuff into stock and move us forward a little bit now is it japan is it coming back to the states with this uh learning learned experience in japan who's next that really had a major impact on your career now yeah so um <clears throat> graduated culinary school left um keystone after a handful of years uh found my way and to Wolfgang Puck Cafe down in the pavilions in Denver. Um, and I was hired to be a kitchen manager. 
I showed up for my first day of work two weeks after my interview and they needed help in the sushi bar. Um, I didn't really know anything about sushi. I had eaten it a couple times when I was a kid. Um, but I was like, sounds great. Let's like, I'm still kind of have that, uh, go get an attitude from culinary school where I'm trying to treat every opportunity as like uh, an apprentice would. Um, so I was all about it and it was a love affair. Um, right off the bat, the, the, you know, I was already in love with knives, right? I was uh, at the resort. I was always on the hunt for a bigger, better knife. You'd see these higher level chefs with like these really fancy, you know, uh, Wistoffs and Henkels at the time. And my starter kit was like these really cheap portioners. Right? So um, then I, I found, uh, found the Japanese knives and I was like, whoa, this is so cool. Right. And they're so foreign and didn't know anything about them. And um, stuck with sushi at Wolfgang's. Uh, the plan was to move me back into the kitchen after whatever amount of time when they found a replacement chef. But uh, I loved it so much that uh, I talked to the head kitchen chef and the sushi chef to keep me back behind the sushi counter full time. Um, and so I continued on with it. Um, and then I found Japan Japango, uh, where worked with them for five years, but uh, uh, cumulatively anyway, and then in 2004, I had an opportunity to train in Japan. And <clears throat> leading up to that, I was kind of on the fence. Like, I kind of missed some fine dining in the haute cuisine. Um, did I want to do sushi? wasn't sure. Uh, but that experience solidified it in my mind. Like, knives, tools, sushi, 100%, all the way, full in. <laughs> so, uh, stuck with it. Um, and then... Uh, met Ted. Uh, his name is Tetsuya Arisue. He goes by Ted. Um, this was at Sushi Sasa. Uh, just a traveling salesman uh, for knives. Come unannounced with a suitcase full of knives every three or four months. Um, and I bought something from him or several things from him every time he came. You know, you had a sense of, of the timing. Uh, so you'd start to save up some cash and then you just keep it in your pocket and he'd show up and you'd be like, perfect. So I would buy something from him, uh, on the regs. And, uh, we kind of formed a friendship from that. Uh, we got to talking. I think I was one of his better customers. Um, and I realized that, uh, through those conversations that he was only going to Japanese restaurants and circa 2008, 9, 10, you started to see that Japanese cutlery was really making its way into Western restaurants. Um, you'd start to see them on TV and you start to see them uh, around. Um, and for me, it was almost commonplace at this time. But I said, you know, I know a ton of chef friends in Denver. Um, Frank Bonanno, Eric Camino, um, uh, Jen Jasinski, uh, Paul Riley, like all these people. So um, Troy Gard. Um, so I said, I'll just give you their numbers. And you can go sell. And um, Japanese culture, they like people to vouch for you. And uh, they're a little shy, too. So he asked if I could make the introductions and drive them around. And I was thinking, what a pain in the butt. Like, I don't want to drive all over Denver on my day off, potentially my one day off, right? But we were friends, and I appreciated him. So I did it. And he made so many more sales and was so appreciative that uh, he cut me a commission check. And I was like, oh, okay, I see the potential here. So we did that together for a handful of years. Um, and 
during that time driving around, we would go all over the place. Uh, Summit County, Eagle County, Fort Collins, Colorado Springs, Denver Metro, Boulder. Uh, I had learned that he wanted to retire about his days in Japan uh, and that he trusted me enough at this time to uh, sell some knives when he wasn't around. So for a, a, a long number of years, I kind of treated that like a hobby almost. And then one day I was like, you know, I think I can actually do something with this. So on one of his final trips, I had said, I'd like to build a website um, and sell like regularly, consistently, create a business. Um, so I asked him permission, asked, uh, and then we asked the manufacturer permission for the um, brand name and started it in 2000, made that decision in 2015, really started the process in 2016. Uh, and uh, I, I thought it would be so cool to do custom knives. You know, you could pick out the blade material, blade style, the handle, handle material, um, possibly get an engraving or something. And it was a very slow going process. And I had branded myself as Chef's Custom Cutlery. <clears throat> and I realized it just wasn't working. So I took a step back, decided to rebrand and became Element Knife Company. So that's really the origin and foundation of, of what I'm doing. And yeah, let's back uh, up a little bit. I'm, I'm, I'm super, Sorry, yeah, I'm just, relationships are fascinating to me. Yeah. So, so fascinating. So, I mean, Ted, I've met Ted. Yeah. I was one of the chefs whose restaurants right. you came uh, to, uh, right? I uh, bought a okay. lot of knives. My crew bought a lot of yeah. knives. Christopher Bennett. Uh, uh, yeah, Diane Snyder. Diane Snyder. My brother, Mitchell Cummings, who's now like all in on sushi and some of the salsa guys trained him early on. Uh, Johnny DiPiero, I could go on and on about oh, yeah, Johnny, buying dude. knives in those early days. So, Ted and you, how do you, why do you find this rapport with a traveling salesman from Japan? It seems like such an odd couple type uh, relationship, odd, like and especially seeing you guys in, in action, so to speak, it was very much like, who the hell are you two guys together? <laughs> But it really, it really created a foundation for now the, the path that you're on. I got to know more about what were those drives like with Ted to Summit County and what were the conversations like? How did this come to fruition in the way that now you're on this completely, you know, new path for yourself, which I think is super unique? Yeah, I don't know. Just right place at the right time, uh, I guess. Um, I, I, I was, I, I hate to say it like this, but for lack of better words, I was kind of a salesman already because like I said, I was always on the hunt for a better knife. Right. And so I liked trying all the different brands of knives. I would buy a knife usually online, um, or from Ted, you know, before Ted, it was, it was basically like online or trying something from like Sir Latab or whatever. Um, and I might like it or I might not. And if I wasn't in love with it, I tried to sell it to coworkers, um, just to cover some basic costs, right? Like I wasn't selling it for what I had bought it for, but, um, if I sold two of those knives I was using, then that would help offset the purchase of a new knife. Uh, 
Um, so I was always kind of like trading or selling my cutlery um, even before I met Ted. Um, and once I discovered his products, the Go Uminosoke Yoshihiro, uh, I had found Kikuichi, which I'll be selling soon. Uh, and I loved them so much that I actually went and visited their showroom in 2008 because I had been uh, using their knives. Um, so, yeah, um, just just kind of circumstance. Uh, uh, I considered Ted a friend, like I said. So when I, I realized I could help him, uh, I had no intention of uh, <laughs> starting a business and going down that path, but just worked out that way and he's a good businessman so I think he saw the potential in knowing me and having that kind of business relationship on top of our uh, personal friendship so um, learned well, the a Japanese lot have him. lots of words to live by lots of, of yeah. cultural fundamental things give us some little nuggets some something that you learned from Ted maybe unexpected or something like the quote from grandma rose that really set the tone for you give us a little i love isms give us a little ted ism you know yeah, learning I, from a, a japanese right. master uh not so many not so much in the sense of a quote but um definitely in the sense of like the pursuit right not giving up um and, and always trying to find that way right so essentially it's problem solving so um, not that he specifically said life is problem solving, but you just figure out how to, uh, if something isn't working uh, in this particular restaurant or, or you're making that sale, you try it there and then maybe you come back when the timing is right. So you yeah, kind of instilled some of the, the, the Japanese technique for, for salesmanship and, and yeah. uh, taking some of that with you. Okay. So you mentioned Sasa got to talk about sasa a little bit because iconic denver sushi restaurant which people listening on the coast will say how is that possible an iconic sushi restaurant in the middle of the country right but really a place that is well established you know and morimoto has said of wayne like best american born sushi chef things like that so there's a lot of mystique you worked there for how many years 13 years. <laughs> that is awesome. five in lifetimes in the restaurant industry. Like 18 yeah. months, two years is the average lifespan. Talk to us about the people yeah. there. Because some really, really, talking of casts of characters, just amazing. really a powerhouse. A powerhouse. So powerhouse. Let's, yeah, let's talk amazing. about Sasa um, for a little bit and the people there. Well, obviously, Wayne, the brainchild, um, he's incredible. You know, he has... The Japanese experience. Um, he worked for Iron Chef Morimoto before he opened Sushi Sasa. Uh, he understands sushi, uh, the Japanese culture, Japanese people, um, and uh, is pretty strict in regards to um, the product that goes out. Um, and you have to be to be at that level. Um, and Speaking on, you know, your comment about like, yeah, a landlocked state, but the world is so small now, you know, you can get anything overnighted from just about anywhere. Um, and really, if you think about sushi, quality sushi, uh, the foundation is rice. So we 
treated our rice like a science. Um, we would, you know, if it was raining, we would adjust our water level. Uh, if it was a new crop or an old crop of rice, we would adjust our water level. Um, we would always start out with the first batch of the day and make our adjustments from there. So we would uh, taste it, determine it needs this or it needs that, uh, needs more soaking time or whatever the answers were. Um, and that's a whole art in and of itself, really. And traditional sushi apprentices will spend two years out of what is a 10-year apprenticeship on rice. So I always tell people, I'd rather have, <laughs> if, if I had to, right, like worst case scenario, I'd rather have mediocre fish on really great rice instead of amazing fish on terrible rice because then it just turns it to shit and you have terrible sushi. Um, that's kind of the fun analogy I make when, we, when I'm explaining how important sushi, uh, rice is to making quality sushi. So we strictly followed Edomai style sushi, which is the most modern incarnation of sushi. And we talked a little bit about that when we did that uh, uh, little icebreaker uh, on that Facebook live video. So, yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, and it's interesting because I think even it's funny, even how much curing there is purely through time or, or other techniques, but you know, how, how fresh is this tuna? Well, it's eight days old, like it's supposed to be because that's exactly right and that's you, what we, you eat a tuna one day in it's <clears throat> rigor it's a rock yeah it's yeah yeah so, so there's just a lot sushi, of misconceptions i think about it and i think huge, it's interesting because denver now especially like you said anything can be overnight denver especially is a hub for transportation of shipping from east coast to west coast west coast to east coast and everywhere in right. between it, so it, the access it, is, is right. pretty it, strong yeah the, the airport is a hub city. Um, and even though sushi is not about eating like fish a day out of the water, but if we get that fish a day out of the water, uh, then we have our eyes on it more from the beginning. Uh, so we can, uh, appropriately control it. Yeah. Um, proper care. I think that's a very, very, very good point. Okay. Give us some yeah. more people. There's a lot of, I mean, Jesus uh, that, and, AG yeah. and stuff. Let's, <laughs> oh, let's, man. Let's just list yeah, every uh, single person who's worked there in 13 years. Ready, go. If I can, <laughs> there's been so many. So, AG. You are on the spot. Song, Zaya, uh, Michael, Justin Yee actually took a stint with us. Um, uh, too many people to remember, but I would say the key, the key folks would be AG, Jesus, Zaya, uh, uh, myself, um, Sung, uh, and now this is a really great kid there, Michael, um, and a couple newbies. Um, and if you think about it, when you said powerhouse, between the years of us combined, we had over a hundred years of experience with the sushi chef. So that's a pretty solid crew. Just an, an amazing, amazing. Anybody who you mentioned, you're going to tag, they're going to tag 10 more people. And there's going to be 350 people listening to this episode so. from Sasa saying two things. Wow. What an amazing team. And Elon, how could you not remember me and throw my name in there? You're going to, yeah, I apologize. That's one of my favorite things about this show <laughs> is, is people will text me later and be like, Oh, I forgot to mention this person and that person. I was like, I love that because it means you care and you're <laughs> thinking about them and you're going to remember who that person was later and then tag them and go, you know what? I'm thinking about you now. That's the point of this show is, talk about more and more and more people so sasa 
what an impact that had on you 13 years unbelievable run now is the time i always want to touch on some unsung hospitality heroes which there are thousands and thousands and thousands and i am on my way to get every single one of their names mentioned on this show and or speak to them tell us about your one of your nominees for unsung hospitality heroes yeah one is the key word here i'd love to mention like 30 people but um i'm choosing tj hobbs um i met him at sushi sasa uh he was our autocore tech uh and i believe now has actually been promoted within autocore but uh i always enjoyed um interacting with tj and during those interactions i learned he was uh, in the in the industry proper so to speak um where he was a sous chef uh with uh now i can't remember anything anymore i'm forgetting the restaurant group um and he worked at breckenridge wincoop group was thank you where he made his bones <laughs> really you. uh yeah and just always upbeat, super positive, always a smile on his face. Um, so personally, it was really great. But then professionally, uh, I mean, I've seen a lot of texts over the years, and I'm not talking autocore, just texts and people in general. Um, and he would, all, he stood out because he always went above and beyond. Um, and, we, you know, if we had a smallest issue with uh, any of our equipment uh, or chemicals, he would be there within uh, a couple hours. Um, just incredible guy. Um, yeah, what more can I say about him? Uh, Alan, you're touching on some really foundational things that I think are very valuable for us to talk about. Yeah. TJ Hobbs, really talented. I, I knew him when he was working with Chris Cena as, uh, as his sous chef and they were opening multiple locations for Breckenridge, Breckenridge Wincoop restaurant group who is Breckenridge Brewing, and they have Cherry Crickets, and they had a lot of different concepts they were opening. Scott Parker was opening concepts for them as well as a chef, super talented guy. Ghost Kitchen comes to mind as a place right. where TJ really got to do a lot uh, as far as the menu goes. And so what I think is really important about somebody like TJ, and I was so excited when I saw his name on kind of like your background information, is that it takes a village like it absolutely takes everybody within the restaurant and everybody surrounding the restaurant. And so from your sales food reps that used to be a server, that bartender used to manage restaurants, used to be a cook, used to be a chef to somebody like TJ who, you know, we find our ways in the different avenues within the industry is so important because they fucking matter. Like your restaurant doesn't run if you don't have your dishwasher operating properly and i think we take it for granted sometimes that they're like lucky to be working with us because we're a notable restaurant or chef or you know name brand whatever I think that's that often is the case. yeah it, it really is and so i think it's super important and i'm excited to be able to talk to somebody like tj on this show for this platform for that exact reason that we find our ways into different parts of the industry yourself included you know iconic sushi chef to taking a passion that was a small part, well, a major part, integral part, but a small part of your career, turning it into the new career path that you're on within the industry 
as kind of a support mechanism. So I think it's a really important, uh, and it's something you and I have talked about. I'd love to give you an opportunity to just talk about that a little bit because I think we need to have that conversation that people like TJ and at every level of the industry, including people that don't even work within the four walls of the restaurant, they really matter. Yeah, 100%. Um, I think the takeaway there is uh, just what you said, right? Like, don't take people for granted um, at whatever level. Um, you know, there's always that kind of, often there's that rift between front and back of the house. Uh, and then sometimes even within those departments, like the AM crew or the PM crew, and that's really a fallacy. Um, it does take a village. Everybody has to get along and work together uh, because <clears throat> it's not about us, right? Like there are levels of that. Sure. Like we have a career and we have interests and we love to do the things we do, but when we're at the restaurant, it's about the guest, right? Customer service is paramount. Um, guest experience. Um, we are working with the food products and we're controlling the food products and we're delivering them out of the kitchen to the guest because they're spending their hard earned money. Right. And um, we're getting paid money. Right. So the owners, the managers, they deserve like the best, right. Cause they're invested financially and uh, uh, with time and professionally. And then as employees, we deserve the best. Uh, uh, so it kind of like works its way up or is, would that be down? Um, uh, and then a small it's, part, it's, it's uh, circuitous, circuitous. It basically circuitous. is one big ball of yarn is what it is, right? Like it's all yeah. in, interwoven. Yeah. I like that. You just took it right back to grandma Rose. Anything worth doing is worth doing right. <laughs> That's right. Such a good, what, Talk about closure, bringing it full circle back to Grandma Rose. I love that. Grandma Rose had some great words to live by. It's going to be hard for your words to live by, to live up to her. However, we always like to end with, you know, a little mantra, a little quote, a little something that we can kind of take, just like you did from Grandma Rose, with us into the world, make it a better place, find our way. And you say, actions speak louder than words. Classic, yeah. classic how do you interpret that? What does it mean to you? Uh, well, yeah, actions speak louder than words. Um, right. Like in the workplace, you can talk until you're blue in the face about how good you are at something or how much you do whatever. Like, let's just say cleaning, for example, like, Oh, you can say you're the best at cleaning. Uh, but if you suck at cleaning then <laughs> your actions spoke more clearly and more loudly, um, than your words did. So um, it's that philosophy of like doing more, right? And talking less, so to speak. So yeah, ask for more work, as it were. Get more involved. Love it. Live it. There's so don't, many don't, proof don't is don't in the pudding. <laughs> all, all kinds yeah. of sayings speak to that. And I think it's it's something that clearly is important within our industry. You've You've alluded to exactly that philosophy multiple times and been living it actions speak louder than words speaking with you however was amazing thank you very much uh elon personal thank you because uh you and i have been friends for quite a few years our paths have crossed in multiple ways we've worked on a lot of projects together 
uh, and you were there at the very genesis of this whole podcast. So it was exciting to be able to talk to you and, and hear things like, like Grandma Rose and David Welch. It's just so awesome to be able to yeah. know somebody that literally for people who don't know, you and I are next door neighbors, which most people don't <laughs> yeah. know, literally like are sharing a wall, right? My, my kid throws yeah. a baseball over the fence and plays long game uh, catch with you all the time. Yeah. Right? So we have a, a lot of personal relationships. I learned 22 new things about you. And I think that's what's important and exciting for me awesome. doing this podcast. So thanks for taking the time to wrap a little bit. Appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And I love what you are doing for our industry and our unsung heroes. I am grateful for the opportunity. Cheers. So it's no surprise Elon had a lot to say about sushi, a lot to say about knives and the relationships that he formed, especially at Sushi Sasa, which is such a pivotal part of his life and career, 13 years. That's basically like 150 years in the restaurant industry. If you're thinking in dog years, because our lifespan is so short in restaurants. So it was very, very exciting for me for him to call out somebody that was not somebody that he worked with directly at Sushi Sasa, but somebody that we both know throughout the industry, super talented chef, who's family man, he's doing things as a support within the industry now. I'm very excited to talk to TJ Hobbs. Thanks for being on the, on the call. Thanks for talking with us, man. Hey, Jensen. I am excited to talk to you. I was so pumped when I read the background, you know, questionnaire that, that Elon sent in and, and he gave a shout out to you. And I was like, TJ, I have not talked to TJ in several years. And so I'm really excited to talk to you a little bit. So before we get into the relationship you have with Elon and some of what you're doing right now that I kind of alluded to, uh, we like to go back to the origin story. So just tell us kind of where, where you were born and raised originally. And, uh, and then we'd like to talk a little bit about maybe where food kind of came into the story. So where, where are you from? I'm originally from Minnesota. I think I knew that because I think I see you geeking out on the Vikings, which do they play? They play today, tomorrow? Sunday they play. They, they play tomorrow. Against uh, the Saints. Against the Saints, yes, sir. Usually we yeah. don't do, go current events because somebody might listen to this in nine months, but yeah. uh, it's, it's a big deal. So I appreciate you. I'm sure your tomorrow would be no chance of talking to you because you're going to be game day focused. So I'm going to be game day. Growing up in Minnesota – Oh, what is it? Hot dishes are like the iconic hot, hot food dish. vessel, right? <laughs> a hot dish. All right. So for anybody who doesn't tater, know. We, tater tot hot dish. Right. It's like a casserole, right? But you call it yep. hot dish. Uh, being from California and then moving out to the Midwest, right? My uncles have the restaurants in Ames, Iowa. I had no idea what a casserole was. And now all <laughs> of a sudden fucking everything is a casserole. So yeah. give us a little bit of cultural context there. What is it that the, the hot dish is, it's hot there in, in Minnesota. What does it represent for, for you guys as like a food culture? It's just that comfort food when it's 40 below in the winter. It's kind of just that gives you that warm feeling. Yeah, 100%. And it's kind of, there's a little bit of competition I sense there where everyone kind of to the potluck, to the, the, gathering even oddly there's this macabre thing where everyone brings their their casserole their hot dish to funerals 
and or church goings and things like that. And there's this little bit of competition that I sense, especially from a little bit of the older women. It, it, am I reading too much into that or is there a little bit to that? There's a little bit of competition no. between whose hot dish reigns supreme. Everyone's got their way and wants to do it their way. There's not a, there's not a whole lot of venturing out in it. It's when they have their recipe, they don't want to, they don't want to change it. It becomes, it becomes timeless and a little bit like passed on generational, right? You see it at all the family gatherings, be it the summer potlucks or Thanksgiving or Christmas, things like that. It kind of becomes like a, yeah, you always expect it. If they, if they were to not serve it, it would, it would be a void. It feels yes. like. Yes. I've, I've tried venturing out with my wife and doing it differently and she doesn't like it. <laughs> there's no chefing those up. No, uh, there's no chefing it up. Just give me the, give me the simple way. I, I feel you there. I am guilty of trying to do the same thing uh, all the time with, uh, with Betsy's family in, yeah. in Iowa. And they said, don't overthink it, chef. I was like, yes, heard, yeah. understood. Yeah. All right, cool. So first job in the industry, always really pivotal. I'm fascinated always. And I say this again and again and again. How we get into the industry has a big impact on our trajectory within the industry. Was it always meant to be? Was it happenstance? Did you just need a job? What was that for you? And where were, was your first job in the industry? First job was a, a company called Von Hansen Meats. It was in a meat market. I, uh, I washed dishes and then I worked uh, the meat counter just uh, packaging, packaging stuff up and helping out customers. Nice. How old and was this in Minnesota? Yes, that was in Minnesota. They've, they've actually got like, I think they're up to 21 different locations throughout Minneapolis area. Okay, so major regional chain. And how old were yeah. you? I was, as soon as I could start driving, so about 16. And what was it for you? Was it, got a, parents said, you want a driver's license, you, you're going to have to buy a car, get a job. What was the, uh, the circumstance? It, it getting a car. It's a good working, motivator for a 15, 16 year old kid, right? Yeah. Yep. Nice. Yep. So was it instantaneous, the bug? Did you catch it right away? How then did it become a, a career path for you? Um, it, so working at the meat market as well, my, I, we grew up on a lake and we'd always barbecue and stuff like that. And then my dad would always overcook the steaks. So I started asking if I could cook them and working at the meat market and grilling steaks and stuff just kind of didn't know what I wanted to do and liked the cooking end of it so I pursued it how did you find your way out to Colorado um I took a vacation out here and we were up in the mountains skiing they actually closed the freeway one day when we wanted to go up there went up snowboarding and then the next day I was down in Denver and went to the Denver Zoo, and I was in like a t-shirt within 24 hours of each other. And I said, let's move here. Love and it. Yeah. You get, you months, get a glimpse of later, Colorado. Yeah. Yeah. And, five and five and months captains. later, I moved out here. Love hearing that. All right. So when we met, you were cooking with the Breckeridge Windcoop Group, uh, Chris Cena and you opening up multiple locations. I think yeah. Ghost Tap and Kitchen was where like, you really started to sink your teeth in a little bit. And yeah. uh, talk to me about that a little bit as far as just opening up under like a, a restaurant group and 
and just that dynamic for you. So it was, I mean, that was, we'll never forget that place. That's the first place that I actually started running my own restaurant. I got to do the menus myself. Um, Chris would help me with those, but um, he kind of let me design what I wanted and then he would just tweak recipes with me. And it was, the, the restaurant group was great. They just, as long as it was good food, I could do what I wanted. Love hearing that. Now, in the context of, of the relationship that you had with Elon that you specifically called out, right? You took a, a divergence from the kitchen like so many of us can't. I, I don't know for you. For me, it was like, I don't know that my body and, and uh, mental health could have handled another decade in the kitchen, right? But there's, there's a lot of yeah. different circumstances that we find ourselves going into the kitchen, staying in the kitchen, getting out of the kitchen, and finding a support role. So talk to us a little bit, working now with Autoclore, correct? Who's doing a lot of the dishwashing units, chemical units. And I'm really, really interested in the concept of that. Just generally, it takes a village to do anything, let alone unbelievable amounts of infrastructure and support systems that it takes to operate a restaurant. Just give us a little bit of, of the why behind making that choice and then what it means to you to kind of be in that support mechanism within the industry. The number one thing it came down to is we found out my wife was pregnant and I just didn't, I wanted to be around for my kids. And I started looking at types of jobs that were in the industry, but more of that nine to five where I can still go to sporting events once my kids are in it and just have that family time. A very different dynamic than being the chef at a restaurant, the hours, the, we alluded, we talked, said, we threw out Christmas and Thanksgiving with the hot dishes. You're going to miss out on a lot of those. So yeah, for you, just like most things, priorities. Yeah. Your priorities, priorities shifted. Yeah. Much respect to that. So with Elon and, he he mentioned specifically like just the attitude clearly like you you give a shit like you know always a smile type attitude which which i knew of you from from just yeah. being in the kitchen even and just said like if you need anything like you're there it was very clear to him that you just get it the challenge that a, a chef is facing in the restaurant and are just so empathetic to that and then are are just Johnny on the spot, making sure that they have what they need. So let's, let's dive into that a little bit, why that relationship is so important, why you are looking to go above and beyond in your, in your role. And then just the interactions with Elon as well. So let's dig into that a little bit. What is it that you see as your role now in this position? Well, a lot of people don't know it, but like a dishwasher makes the restaurant run. Like, and it's just, I've been in his shoes and know that when you're without a dishwasher, it doesn't make life easy. And that's a big thing with our company. We've got quite a few people that have spent time in restaurants. So they know that when someone has something broken or water spraying all over that it just needs to get done and there needs to be an urgency in it. Yeah. And that clearly is something that Elon echoed was top of mind for you all right let's let's talk about sushi sasa a little bit well 
let's maybe talk about Sushi Sasa, but I'm super interested in some of the late night phone calls or texts or however you're communicated to are, what is some of the most batshit stuff that you've been called into situations? I know there's gotta be some funny stories that you have about going into a restaurant and, you know, I don't know, f- finding crazy shit stuffed into dishwashers. Give us, give us something. There's gotta be something fun. I don't know what I'm babbling about, but there's gotta be some good stories you have. The craziest things are, Whenever I go into places, people will be having a conversation and they'll stop when I'm there because they're not sure if they're going to offend me with what they're saying or anything like that. And I just tell them, I said, I worked in restaurants for 10 years. Like you're, you can have your conversation. It's not going to offend me. That's the number one thing I see is people just stop because they think like, oh, this guy's not, not one of us. We don't want to get in trouble or something like that. And it's, that's the biggest thing is I see. Well, you have the press dickies and the nice button down yeah. shirt, right? It looks yeah. like your shirts are starched. The, yeah. This is like a foreign thing to the guys in the restaurant. They're like, who the fuck is this guy looking all prim and polished? Yep. Und- uh, understood. It's like, a, it's like a guest just walked into the kitchen and all of a sudden they have to filter themselves. Yeah, it's like that open kitchen. When you walk from the back to the front of the open kitchen, the filter goes on and then back off when you're, when you're in the back, back of the house again. And you're like, I, I need some of that. Like, give me some of that banter. I kind of miss that banter. I'm sure you're like, uh, love it. Now, now that you say that there's one of the, one of these places, we've got these under, under counter dishwashers and I'm at this coffee shop and there's this uh, girl who works there and built the relationship with her and I'm down working on the machine and the, uh, the espresso machines right above the dishwasher. And she looks down at me and she's like, I think I've known you long enough and I've wanted to say this, but I don't know if I should. And I'm like, just say it. And she just says to me, while you're down there. And it was just, I just busted out laughing because it was something you hear in restaurants all the time. Just the perfectly inappropriate yet so comforting statement of people that work in a restaurant. It's exactly. It's absolutely perfect. All right, Elon specifically, when you go to Sushi Sasa and you're interacting with somebody like Elon, I'm very interested because Elon is just like such a good guy, right? And so yeah. just open to people and positive things like that are really important, which is I say that with such reverence because a lot of us chefs are fucking assholes, right? Like yeah. we we're just so like at a fevered pitch that it's really hard to slow down sometimes. And I bet you walk into situations where like they're yelling at you because their dishwasher unit is fucked up. And it's probably because they did something user errors 90% of the time, I'm sure. Yeah. But what is it? What is it like, you know, walking into a place like that and having something like Elon and just building rapport with somebody that's got that positivity and like really, really appreciates the job that you're doing it's just it's so nice going into a place like that when when you get the call yeah and they're something's broken and they just want it fixed when they have that attitude of like yeah just get here as soon as you can we just want it fixed it just makes it easier going in there and working with them you just walk in and fix it and they're just so appreciative of what you do um just makes my job easier and makes their job easier it's not it's not 
one of those places you dread going where you're going to walk in the door and just start getting yelled at, like you said, um, for no reason. It's polarizing, right? Because yeah. you're never getting a call because something's gone right. You're yeah. always getting a call because something went wrong. Now you have the opportunity then to save the day. So there is like a, a cool thing. However, just the relationship always begins. The interaction always begins with something negative. So that's definitely got to be a challenge. So I can, I can definitely empathize with the feeling of, of knowing you're not walking into a shit show in the sense that it's going to be your fault no matter what as a person versus like, let's fix the problem. How do you think as a chef having dealed with fire after fire, after fire, after fire puts you in a position to be better at handling that adverse situation? Well, it's just, we had another customer in the past that he, he left kitchens and went back, like went, did some sales and then came back to the kitchen again. And his attitudes completely changed because it's, he realized on the other side, they, there's people out there, they just don't care. They just want it fixed. Like they don't need excuses or anything like that. And it's, it, it's all, like you said, all of our interactions are, are problems. It's not just a call of, Hey, how are you doing? It's, Hey, can you come out and fix this? And then it, it evolves into more and just like, yep, it's all fixed for you. And then it just evolves into those, those conversations and those relationships. But it's just always that initial, we've got a problem, come fix it. Yeah, I like that. Those relationships, that's what this whole podcast is about, is finding those relationships that mold us into the, the positive people that we are within this industry, the things that are great about this industry. So, again, awesome talking to you. Really, really so thankful to Elon for, again, thinking bigger, like thinking yeah. outside of, of just the sushi chef right next to you, even though they are unbelievably important yeah truly like seeing the depth and scope of the industry that kind of vision is rare i i can't say that i had it to that level when i was knee deep in it and, and things like that so i can really really appreciate that i want to see more and more of that support across every facet of the industry so tj thanks for taking some time and thanks for giving us a little thanks bit of insight into hot dishes i, I really appreciate it because <laughs> It's such a mystery to me and I'm continuously trying to understand culture around food and yeah. it's, it's iconic for sure. Yeah, definitely. All right, TJ, appreciate you. Good luck with the uh, game tomorrow. Thanks, Jensen. We'll see you around. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Best Served Podcast. Subscribe to our show and connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Tune in next week to discover more unsung hospitality heroes.